I thank you, Tim, for that prayer supplication. And I thank each of you for being here this morning to participate in our worship gathering and honoring me with your presence as I give an attempt at preaching the Word of God. And it is indeed an awesome privilege to be able to open up the infallible and inerrant Word of God and to expound these godly principles to you. You'll find our text this morning in 1 John chapter 3 as we continue to examine uh, this, the first of the epistles of John. Uh, and, and so we'll be looking in chapter 3. You know, as we prepare to, to go into the sermon, into the message, uh, I think it's, it's important that we see the context in which we live, the context in which John is writing, and, and even going back further in history. We, we would all have to agree that we live in a very fragmented time. Uh, uh, we live in a very fragmented society and a very fragmented world. We, we live in a very diverse society. We live in a very diverse world. So nationally and world as globally, there's great division. People are divided in, in many ways. Uh, people are divided geographically and culturally and language and politically and economically and racially. There are many, many ways. But, but understand that as we examine what John is writing to the early church and to subsequently to Christians today, he's helping us to understand that there is a more significant division that has drawn a chasm of division between humanity that has nothing to do with geographics and nothing to do with politics or race or culture, but rather it's spiritually. And this division is, is of eternal significance. And everybody, everybody, every person that's ever walked the face of this earth and breathed the air of this world has found themselves ultimately on one side of the great divide. And so John is going to be helping us to understand that he'll be building the premise of, his, of, of what he's writing here in my message on this concept of division. There, there are many nations, there are many languages and cultures uh, across the globe, but, but brothers and sisters, understand there are two families, two families, two eternal families that have been divided and for all of eternity will be divided. And you're either in one or the other. To appreciate this great division, I think before we even launch into chapter 3, beginning in verse 10, I, I want to ask you to hold your place there in 1 John and, and let me just set a historical background. And I'll try not to spend too much time camped out in the Old Testament, but I think to appreciate what John is saying and what you and I are dealing with today on a daily basis, it's good to go back and understand the origin. So if you'll turn in your Old Testament to the book of Isaiah, chapter 14, and let's understand the, the origin of the two eternal families. Where do they come from? How are they continually in existence today? And I'm sure that you've already surmised that I'm talking about the family of God versus the family of Satan. And so if, if you'll allow me to, 
extract a portion of Isaiah chapter 14. And if you've read this chapter, and I'm sure that many of you have, and you understand the historical context, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah to a pagan king, the king of Babylon. So God is in one sense, through the prophet, speaking to the secular king of Babylon. But in a portion of chapter 14, even though he's continuing to speak to the king of Babylon, he's speaking through him now. And maybe to help you to see and understand this a little better, you may recall in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus is explaining to his disciples how he's going to be arrested, he's going to be on trial, and how he's going to be crucified. And you remember how Peter, Simon Peter, after he has just made this wonderful glowing testimonial of who Jesus is, the Christ, the Son of the living God, well, G Peter... Impetuous Peter pulls Jesus aside and says, Lord, forbid it. That, that'll never happen to you. You remember the words that Jesus said. He's speaking to Peter, but he's speaking through Peter. He's addressing the evil, sinister force that prompted Peter to make such an assertion. He's addressing the devil when he says, Get thee behind me, Satan. He's basically telling Peter, get out of my way. Don't, don't try to obstruct me. <laughs> don't forget your place. But he's also looking through Peter to the very sinister, evil force that has been and would continue to be a menace to his ministry all the way to the cross. And so he's doing that. God is doing this as he's speaking to the king of Babylon. He's speaking to the evil power spiritual power that's behind this pagan king and causing him to be such an atrocious king, violent, greedy, self-centered, egotistical. He's addressing the devil himself. And so in chapter 14 of Isaiah, if you'll just direct your attention to verse 12. Just imagine now, God has got his eternal omniscient eye, eyes upon the evil one. And in verse 12 it says, How you are fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. In other words, his name as a honored cherub, speaking of Lucifer, was Daystar. How you are cut down to the ground, you who weaken the nations. For you have said in your heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God, in other words, all the other angels. I will sit on the mount of the congregation, which is the seat of God, on the farther, farthest no sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, that's all the heavenly host. I will be made like the Most High, El Elyon. I will be made like Him. And God is saying to Satan, you shall be brought down to Sheol, to the lowest depths of the pit. We're looking at the rebellion of Lucifer, this high-ranking cherub of God, a, creator of, a creation of God, but a very special creation of God, and how he attempts to rebel, to usurp the authority of God Almighty and lead a rebellion against God. Reinforce that if you'll turn it over to Ezekiel chapter 28, and we won't spend too much time, but, but it's good to understand. Where, where did the rebellion take place? How 
was it that evil entered into all of creation? What is the origin of these two families that we speak of? You're looking at it. You're watching it transpire in, in real time, maybe before historical time began. In Ezekiel, again, God is speaking to the evil, prideful king of the country of Tyre, city of Tyre. But he's speaking through this king at a portion of this writing. So in Ezekiel chapter 28, if you'll look with me at verse 11. And again, God has got his omniscient, eternal, laser-focused eyes on the very source of the problem. Look at verse 12. Son of man, take up a lamentation for the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God. And now the language changes. You are the seal of perfection. God is speaking to Lucifer. He's speaking to that wonderful, glorious, powerful, prominent cherub who is given position and given wonderful privileges on the mount of God. You were the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. This cherub, this mighty super angel of God was not only powerful and highly intelligent, but he was extremely beautiful. Against the Shekinah glory of God, he describes the precious stones such as Sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and jasper, sapphire, turquoise, and emerald with gold. As the Shekinah glory of God would shine upon this cherub who was at the very presence of God and stood by God to bring glory to him. And the radiance of the glory of God would reflect off of these precious stones that made up the covering of this, this amazing cherub. It just cast a hue of rainbows of color all over the throne room of God. What a magnificent creature he was says the workmanship of your timbrels and pipes was prepared for you on the day you were created. Amy, I believe that not only was Lucifer beautiful and prominent and powerful, but he was a musician. Some commentators have speculated that this great archangel at the mountain of God before the throne of God possibly even led in the, in the singing of praises and was musically created as well. Look at verse 14. You were the anointed cherub who covers. I establish you. I stat you, were, you were on the holy mountain of God. In other words, you were at the highest point of service. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones describing the holy presence of God. You were in the very presence of the holiness of God. Verse 15, you were perfect in, in your ways from the day you were created. Don't miss that point. Don't Overlook that significant point. As powerful and as intelligent and as gifted and as beautiful and as prominent as Lucifer was, he was no match for the Creator because he himself was a created being. Till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you made, and he's talking language that could fit the king of Tyre, but also we know Satan manipulates nations and economies. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within and you sinned. 
Therefore I cast you as a profane thing out of the mountain of God, and I destroy you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the fiery stones. You see the fall of Satan. Oh no, it wasn't a slip where he says, oops, and he fell. He was grabbed hold of by the powerful hand of God and cast down out of the presence of God. We know that in the book of Revelation, in that powerful vision that John has in chapter 12, verse 3, verse uh, chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, and then verse 9 describes Satan as that great red fiery dragon. And, and, and how John says, and I saw him cast down from heaven and his tail swooped across the heavens and he gathered a third of all the stars in his fall. Which commentators say gives us an idea of the magnitude of the rebellion that took place. He had convinced one third of the angels of heaven to join him in rebelling against God. And they were all cast down as we see in the language of, of Revelation chapter 12. And those fallen angels, if you will, are as what we know as demons, servants of the devil, minions of the sinister force of evil. Jesus Christ himself in Luke's gospel chapter 10 verse 18 exclaimed, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was one of the only ones could say that because he was there. And so when we talk about two families, we're talking about the family of God versus the family of Satan. And you'll see this language implied and incorporated in John's writing. And so as we look at chapter 3, verse 10 in 1 John, you're going to see he's talking about the children of God versus the children of the devil. And it's important that we first of all examine what I call the marks of the true believer. You call yourself a Christian. You find great comfort in your Christian heritage and identity. And rightfully so. But have you really stopped to give serious consideration based on the teachings of the Word of God? What is the credible evidence that you are indeed a child of God? Have you really thought about that? I heard evangelist Greg Laurie mention in a message recently, he says, if you were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to con even convict you? So we're looking at the, the marks of true believers of God, members of the family of God. And so, first of all, I want us to see as we look in verse 10, chapter 3, true children of God resemble their heavenly Father. How much do you resemble the Lord? Is there a family resemblance? We all take pride in being able to look at our children and our grandchildren and, and say, oh yeah, that, this one looks like me and this one looks like me and he's got my nose and she's got my eyes and on and on and on. How much do you resemble your father? True children of God resemble the heavenly father. And so look at verse 10. In this, 
the little in this the children of God, John says, and the children of the devil are manifest. He says there's a clear distinction. You don't have to worry about confusing who's who. Examine them. Look for the marks, for the characteristics. And he says, in this the children of God and the children of the devil are manifested. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. So let's just stop there for a second. When we talk about true children of God resemble the Heavenly Father, one of the true marks that you'll see right away are God's children, His people, those who belong to the family of God, resemble God in their righteous character. Righteousness. It's one of the true characteristics of a child of God. You know, in Proverbs, in chapter 15, listen to what the, the writer of, of Proverbs tells us about this. In chapter 15 of Proverbs, verse 9, The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he, God, loves him who follows in righteousness, or follows righteousness. God is attracted to those who are caught up in and practice righteousness. Righteousness is a characteristic of the children of God. Jesus, in his great Sermon on the Mount, in the Beatitude in Matthew chapter 5, distinguished righteousness as a characteristic of those who would inherit the kingdom of God. In Matthew's cha Gospel chapter 5, verse 6, he said, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Is there a hunger in your heart? Not just on Sundays, not just on Easter, at Easter or Christmas. Is there a daily hunger in your heart for the righteousness of Christ? He says, if it is, you will be filled. That is a true characteristic of a child of God, if there is righteousness. Righteousness is a big thing to the Lord. It's a distinguishing characteristic of children of God. And that's why Paul, in writing in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, says, He, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for us, that we might become what? The righteousness of God in him. So one of the true marks of a true believer, a child of God, is that we, re we reflect the righteousness of our Lord. Another true mark is that we show brotherly love. We show brotherly love. You'll notice at the end of verse 10, nor is he who does not love his brother. Suffice it to say that if you don't love the brothers and sisters in the family of God, you, got, you, you have good reason to have doubt about your spiritual lineage and your spiritual affiliation. Christians love one another. Dr. Francis Schaeffer, in his book that he wrote in 1970, he was a 20th century apologist for the church. And in this book that was entitled The Mark of the Christian, he said that through the centuries, men have devised symbols to reflect or depict their Christian identity, ranging from crosses that could be worn on a lapel or a chain around your neck, to symbols of a fish, even sometimes haircuts that were, I didn't get into that, and I don't think he's talking about the long hair of the Beatles back in the 60s. But anyway, he said just there were different ways that people down through the ages have chosen to come up with some type of symbol that would represent and identify them as Christians. But listen to what 
Dr. Schaefer went on to say as he talked about what he called the universal, but the universal distinguishing mark that will last until the Lord returns is this, their love for one another. Their love for one another. We know that. We know that Jesus gave a new commandment to his disciples prior to his crucifixion. He says, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another. He's talking to the Christians, to fellow Christians, to disciples. You shall love one another as I have loved you. And by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. So children of God are marked by this brotherly love. In Romans chapter 10, I like how Paul puts it. And what a wonderful challenge for, the, for, for any church. Our church and every church. This ought to be the mindset. This ought to be the, the, the heart frame of every church. When Paul says in Romans chapter 12, chapter 12 verse 10, he says, Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, giving to hospitality. Does that not sound like the kind of church that you would like to be a part of? Where God's people demonstrate that they are indeed the children of God by showing their love one for another. But also another mark that we can look at is God's people will attract the enemy's wrath. If you're a true child of God, if you're in the family of God, you might as well accept that you are in the crosshairs of the devil, the demons, and all of those who make up that evil family of Satan. You will draw attention to yourself and it's not good. You know, I always question sometimes a person that claims to be a Christian and they talk about how everybody loves them. And how, you know, even people that are not Christians and don't go to church, they, they like them and they agree with them. And I'm thinking, whoa, whoa, time out, time out. Something doesn't jive with God's word here because we're not out here to be friends of the world. We're here as representatives of the kingdom of God. And you better believe that the head of the family of the devil, Satan himself, and all of those under that are going to take exception to you. So, as we go back to chapter 3 of 1 John, look at verse 11. He says, For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, verse 12, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And, and why did he murder him? Because his works, speaking of Abel's, or, or, or speaking of Cain, because his works were evil and his brother's righteous. I don't want to go back, but if you were to go back and reread chapter 4, I believe we examined that in our Christian growth groups not long ago, but do you remember the story of the first two children of humanity, Cain and his younger brother Abel, and how both of them were God worshipers. At a appointed time, Cain, who was a tender of, of, of uh, fields, a farmer if you will, and Abel was uh, a tender of sheep, a herdsman. They brought their sacrifices to God. Cain 
man comes in and he's got probably a bushel basket full of all kinds of vegetables and fruit and he's so proud, you know, coming in and saying, here, you'll be proud of that. Abel, on the other hand, comes in hands bloodied and he's got fat from a sacrifice, an animal sacrifice, a sheep or sheep that he has killed to make a sacrifice to God. And we know that God rejected Cain's offering. Why? Yeah, I can imagine that in that early dawn of history time, right after the fall, when Adam and Eve were sitting down with their boys, and that's not to say they weren't other children, but they're two oldest children, and they're talking about the good old days, when they walked and talked with God, and how they had this wonderful fellowship in the beautiful Garden of Eden. And, and they, I'm sure they recounted every detail so their boys wouldn't lose the significance of what had transpired with them. And they could learn from the lessons of the parents. I'm sure that Adam and Eve pointed out to Cain and to Abel, we made a feeble attempt to try to cover ourselves, our nakedness before God. And, and so we grabbed up some fig leaves or some kind of vegetation and we were covering up our nakedness, you know, as if to try to cover up our sin. And when God saw us, He said, nope, that won't do. you got to understand. Mere vegetation doesn't even go in the right direction to begin to deal with the seriousness of sin. God showed us, I'm sure Adam and Eve were telling Cain and Abel, that sin is serious business. It is deadly. It cost us spiritual life. And to demonstrate that, God took off these weak attempts of covering ourselves with vegetation and He killed the first animals, the first death transpired at the hands of God as he killed innocent animals and took their skins and steel with their blood and, they, and he covered our bodies to remind us of the seriousness of the terrible decision that we made that cast us into this fallen state. Boys, don't ever forget that. Abel didn't. I believe that's why he brought sacrifices that required blood. On the other hand, Cain flippantly comes in, throws out some of his produce as if that's going to appease God, and God rejected his offering as if to reject his attitude and to reject his mindset and says, son, you don't get it. You don't even begin to get the seriousness of the commission of sin. But on the other hand, he liked Abel's. Ladies and gentlemen, it's still true today. You can't bring anything before holy, righteous God, just and, and, and mighty as He is, that it will ever, ever begin to appease and propitiate His, His wrath towards sin. Nothing, nothing but the blood. The blood of Jesus. Going back, as He's talking about Cain, Cain was of the wicked one and murdered his brother because, you see, he was jealous. He resented the fact that, that his brother's offering was, was accepted by God and, and, and was righteous in God's eyes. And so here you see Cain as a depiction, as a depiction of, of, of those who are of the family of Satan. Remember when we were back in Proverbs 
In chapter 15, God prefers righteousness. Listen to what he says in verse 8, same chapter. He says, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. But the prayer of the upright is his delight. God knows our hearts. And we cannot please him apart from having a humble heart of love. Children of God are marked by brotherly love. We see that back in 1 John. In chapter 3 verse 14. He says we know that we have passed from death to life. Because we love the brothers. But in contrast to that. In contrast to that. We know that those who are of the world and, and of Satan, they will target those of us who are children of God. Children of the devil hate the children of God. That's nothing that Jesus didn't already warn his disciples of. In Matthew's Gospel, chapter 24, listen to these words. They're familiar to you, I'm sure. Verse 9 of chapter 24 of Matthew's Gospel. Jesus says, then they will deliver you, talking about his disciples, children of God. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended and many will betray one another and will hate one another. And Jesus would say also to his disciples in John's Gospel, chapter 15, verse 18. He says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. Friends, it's absolutely futile and pointless to try to befriend the family of Satan. To somehow think that you can be their buddy and you can get along... And I'm not saying you need to go out there and be antagonistic. No, you should have a spirit of love. You, you know, we, Jesus told us to love our neighbor. He didn't say just go out there and love those neighbors who are in the family of God. We should have a, a compassion for the lost. We should have a compassion for those who are hurting and struggling. But don't think that you're going to bring the two families together. Never, never happened. They hated Jesus. They hated his people down through the ages. You see, children of the devil are driven by their master's sinful hatred for God and his people. Shared with you there in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, you know where the source of that hatred came from. And a great cherub who was so honored, cast down in his rebellion against God, and in Satan's heart there's nothing but absolute hate and disdain for God and for the things of God. And that goes on even now. Satan is working through people. He's manipulating people. That's what John said in verse 12 here. He says, not as Cain, who was, did you get that? Of the wicked one. If you were to go back in chapter 4 of Genesis, at that episode where Cain slew his brother Abel, just before Cain made that fateful decision to, to kill his brother out of anger and jealousy, God warned him. He says, why is your countenance fallen, Cain? Why are you angry? Don't you realize that sin is crouching at the door? And I'll personify that word sin. You might as well put Satan in there. Don't you see it, Cain? The devil is crouched at your door. I know when we were growing, I was growing up on the farm, we cats were outside. Well, so for, for that matter, we're the dogs. But... But we had a cat that, honest to goodness, if you cracked that door, I mean, just two inches, all he needed was, 
I, that rascal could slide. I think he was a snake in a cat's body. But I mean, bat, you could bat your eyes, you know, cracked up. Shoot, that cat is in there because he didn't like men outside. Let me tell you something. Satan doesn't wait for a grand invitation. He's waiting at the door of people's hearts. And, and that's what God was saying. Be careful, Satan. God would say it through the Apostle Peter later in Peter's epistle when he says the devil is, is prowling like a hungry lion. And Satan took over. Cain didn't heed God's advice. And in an instant, Satan took over. This wasn't just Cain killing Abel. It was Satan killing Abel. Because Abel was a righteous man. And he was a part of the family of God. And down through the ages, all the evil dictators and all the terrorists and all the murderers and all the people who have done hideous, evil things to other human beings, especially towards those who are of the family of God. I think about the Christians in the first century who were persecuted in the, in the arenas as they were treated like covered in goat skins and sheep skins and, and put in an arena as, as entertainment to be torn to shreds by wild dogs or wolves or burned on a, on a pole as they were wrapped in, in wax as a, as a human candle, as they were hunted down like wild animals. Folks, and it's going on today. Every Sunday we pray for nation after nation where God's people, the family of God, are being absolutely tortured, harassed, persecuted by those who are possessed by Satan. Instruments in the hand of the devil. Cain was one who was of the wicked one. Oh, listen, when you feel the animosity and the ostracism and the criticism and the attacks, verbal and physical, and yes, even possible persecution, oh, let me tell you something. Realize who is actually behind it. Didn't the Apostle Paul tell us in Ephesians chapter 6? He says, we don't war against flesh and blood but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual host of wickedness in heavenly places. He says, we've got an enemy. You better believe it. And he's occupying the bodies of these radical Islamic terrorists. He's, he's occupying the minds and the hearts of these street killers. He's occupying the souls of these gang members that are torturing and killing people. He's doing all these evil things. He's at work. He's your enemy. We're in spiritual warfare. One family against the other. Authentic followers of Christ also practice sacrificial love. That's another trait that we inherit from our Father and through the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at verse 16. By this we know love because He laid down His life for us. We know that. We just celebrated it with the observance of the Lord's Supper. Supper, And we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Jesus Christ was a perfect example of sacrificial love. He was the Lamb of God. He was the precious Lamb of God. 
He gave His life on the cross 2,000 years ago. He shed His innocent atoning blood. In John chapter 10, you don't have to turn back there, but Jesus is talking about Himself when He says, and the good shepherd, He says the thief comes to steal and to kill and destroy, but the good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. And we know that. And His disciples, the children of the family of God, model that. They imitate that sacrificial love that Jesus modeled for us in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. You may recall, we looked at that when we went through 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21, he says, Peter says, for, this, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in His steps. Jesus demonstrated sacrificial love. That's a characteristic of the children of God, the family of God. In John 15, 13, Jesus said, Greater love hath no one than this, that a man will lay down his life for his friends. Oh yeah, a lot of people sound like Gomer Powell. I love you. But let me tell you something. That can be lip service. Imposters hypocritically practice empty sentimentality. Just what John was saying. For people to have the world's goods and see their brother in need and shut up their hearts from him. How does the love of God abide in him? You say you love the brothers and sisters? You say you love fellow Christians? Oh, really? How routinely? How often do you sacrifice your money? How often are you willingly? I mean, not begrudgingly, cheerfully, giving of your time, your energy, to help meet the needs of those who are brothers and sisters in Christ. Because that kind of superficial talk, listen, doesn't cut it with the Lord. God's looking for authentic children who demonstrate authentic acts of love. I like James is so practical. In his epistle, James is nailing this and he does it in such an illustrative way. In chapter 2, listen to what James says in his epistle, verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of you, talking to Christians, says to them, Oh, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself it does if it does not have works is dead. How active is your love? Children of God, children of the family of God imitate the sacrificial love of Christ beginning in the family. And that's a challenge. Because we are, we are absolutely indoctrinated, infiltrated, and manipulated by a humanistic society that is grounded in materialism and it breathes constantly selfishness and self-centeredness. It's all about self. And you know and I know 
if we're honest with ourselves and certainly to the Lord, there's not a one of us that does not come under the influence of that poisonous, satanic philosophy system. What's mine is mine, and bless God, I'm going to keep it. Back in 2013, the leaders of this church carefully and prayerfully guided the membership of Cornerstone through an intentional process to move our church in the direction away from cultural Christianity with those kinds of influences and towards biblical Christianity. I'll be honest, it's not a popular movement today. Just accept that. Because many of so-called Christians are thoroughly compromised to the culture in which we live. They love the comfortable, self-centered, egotistical version of Christianity that has come out of that. But we, under the conviction of the Spirit of God, began to move our church intentionally towards biblical healthiness. And we identified several core values that would guide and direct the purpose of this church and the practice of this church. And one of those values, as you well recall, was having a mission mentality. A mission mentality. And do you understand that a mission mentality can be boiled down to this, ladies and gentlemen? It's the love that you profess towards God. It's the love that you profess with your mouth towards others. Put in to action. It's love in action. In order to be a biblically healthy church, we can't continue to give lip service, but we've got to get real about this sacrificial love that characterizes the Savior who in Himself raised up the body of Christ. So as I'm Studying and preparing this message, I guarantee you the Spirit of God's walking all over me. And he's saying, what about it, Charlie? What about it? How diligent and quick and prompt are you to sacrifice, actively show your love for those around you? And that's the same question I'll pose to each of you this morning. It's a wonderful thing to be a part of the family of God. Amen? It's a glorious thing. As I consider what Christians represent across this land and around the world, as I think about the wonderful potential that exists in, in the lives of God's people, as I think about the wonderful promise that awaits all of us when we step over into glory in the very presence of God and all the spiritual blessings of heaven that are ours through our inheritance in Jesus Christ. Hallelujah! It's a great thing to be a part of the family of God. But ladies and gentlemen, we best not wear the label without practicing the lifestyle. Because the label won't get you far. Jesus is looking at the way you and I live our lives. So if we are children of God, are the marks there? Do we resemble our Heavenly Father in righteousness and in love for one another as brothers and sisters in Christ? When's the last time you came under any heat from a member of the family of the devil? Or are you just somebody that everybody likes? Even wicked people. 
And then, when have you seen evidence of the practice of the sacrificial love of God in your life? I want to be an authentic child of God. Not just as Charlie Martin estimates it, but as the Word of God describes it. I challenge each one of you to consider these marks, hold them up against your mindset and your lifestyle, and you honestly ask God, Father, how, how much do I resemble you?